0: Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's November 9th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Adam Rubenstein of the Weekly Standard and Charlie Matesian of – did I get that right? Matesian? Because I know nobody gets it right. Matesian of Politico. Uh, on Fridays, we do the cross-platform. And we have, uh, at the moment that we're we're talking, and of course, this uh, is constantly shifting, we have uh, recounts going on in Georgia and in uh, Florida, or talks of uh, recounts in, in, in Georgia. Uh, it looks like the Democratic blue wave turns out to be a, a blue wave, with the conventional wisdom suggesting that uh, Democrats may end up picking up 40 seats, which is the most since uh, Watergate. Uh, we have the Democrat ahead in Arizona, which may mean that uh, the uh, Republican pickup in the Senate may be only two seats. So it, it is one of those moments where the, the the election looks a lot different on Friday than it did on election night. And, uh, Charlie, let's just talk about – I want to get to Steve King, by the way, who really lashed out at uh, at the Weekly Standard. It's kind of the, the coveted non-endorsement of uh, Steve King. But, Charlie, give me your – Your um, state of what the state of play is in Florida, which seems to be once again reminding us why, you know, what peak Florida electoral chaos looks like.
1: Yeah, nobody does uh, electoral chaos quite like Florida. And it's over (laughs) and over again. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not it's not an isolated instance. You know, it started in 2000. And then I think once the nation began paying attention, we began seeing this Uh, this pattern there, and in part because it's such a closely divided state in in lots of ways. But here we have probably, I think it's the second most populous county in the state, Broward, which is, uh, and it's also uh, solidly democratic. So you're talking about millions of voters, strongly democratic, and a notorious office. And when I say notorious, it is an office that's well known, not from partisans, but from both sides uh, in the media, uh, as well as just an unresponsive office that has had lots of problems. And so all of a sudden you have uh, this uh, almost like a perfect electoral storm where you've got two closely contested, nationally watched races that are, you know, razor close. And then there are other statewide races that are also equally close, all of them coming down to the question of, you know, what is the the threshold for a recount? And uh, at the same time, we don't even know how many votes have been cast, uh, in part because Broward keeps coming up with new ballots seemingly uh, out of uh, thin air. So I think until that gets resolved, you know, we're going to have some problems tr- understanding exactly what the state of play in Florida is.
0: Yeah, I, I noticed that uh, you tweeted out this morning from the Florida Playbook of the 67 county election supervisors' offices. Broward's is hands down the worst office for the press, the public, political scientists, or even the governor to deal with. It's seldom responsive to public records requests. Um, but what do you make of uh, Marco Rubio's somewhat uncharacteristically going on a Sort of a uh, Twitter uh, rant, uh, essentially accusing Broward officials of trying to uh, steal the the Senate election. I mean, how do we separate out how does somebody outside of Florida separate out the the wild conspiracy theories from legitimate concerns about what's going on there?
1: Well, I would say I have a couple answers to that. You know, my my general answer when you know, as as you guys, I'm sure know, when you talk to people that aren't involved in politics and they want to know about all the craziness, and and there are obviously lots of conspiracy theories circulating around there. And I always tell them that, you know, I've been a reporter for a, an editor for a long time, and I've dealt with lots of these folks, and most of the time, um, they're too inept to execute quality conspiracies, and so uh, I often say that that that's likely not the source of it. Here, you know, it will sound a little cynical, but my first reaction to the Rubio tweet was uh, this is, you know, this is a county that's a longstanding frustration for public officials in Florida. It's sort of notorious for this. And then I started thinking of the politics as well, because, you know, that's just, um, you know, when you cover politics, you're, you're, you're always thinking or you're trying to look around the corner at what people's motivations are. And to me, it's a no brainer for Rubio. You know, of course, you want to get out there, be loud. Uh, especially with lots of folks in your party that are maybe suspicious of whether you're on the team at times, and uh, there's really, you know, no loss for him to get out there bashing Broward County officials uh, and uh, waving the flag for the party.
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I, I suppose that's true. It, you know, it, it did occur to me that we we're, we're now at a point of, of electoral politics where, when Democrats win, Republicans will claim voter fraud um, when. Um, when Republicans win, Democrats uh, charge voter suppression. And so we're at this that everybody's got their their reason to, you know, question the results. So let's switch over to George. And I said there was a recount going in in Georgia, which is not actually true. Um, They they have sort of the three dimensional chess there where they have to get to you have to get to 50 percent to avoid a runoff. And At this point, uh, Kemp is still over 50%. But uh, that has the potential to be just as heated, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and and they... Both Florida and Georgia have so many volatile, you know, politically radioactive elements to it because it's not just really vote counting. It's also uh, about race in these states and the, mm-hmm. and the different candidacies. And, and so it just it's such a uh, combustible mix. And, you know, when you take a look at, at right now, you're, you're, uh, you are you're see it's, it's so close that the Abrams campaign is actually setting up phone banks for voters to check on their provisional ballots. The national parties are involved here. And and so we're not even at the point yet where I where there are enough where there's enough certainty about what's been cast to get to the next stage of fighting. So I mean I think this is going to drag on. I mean people who expect that this is going to be resolved fairly quickly in either state, you know, I, I think uh, are setting themselves up for disappointment.
0: Yeah, this is one of those moments where you have to ask, uh, you know. Is there a better way to run elections? I mean, given given what goes on in Florida, Arizona, and California on a relatively regular basis, is there some way that we can do this somewhat more efficiently so that every vote gets counted, No, there's no voter fraud, there's no voter suppression, and we find out, uh, in less than a month who won these wh- who won these elections. Um, just a brief thought on on Georgia. I was uh, looking at some of the numbers of the, uh, the you know, and, and, and Stacey Abrams um, really was testing the theory, you know, w- w- if we just maximize the democratic urban vote, if we'll get the urban vote, we'll get the suburban vote, um, and th- that would be the formula to success. And clearly, and this is I think it's kind of a national story, that you had a very, very clear wave, um, you know, big turnouts in urban areas, a big shift to uh, the Democrats in suburban areas, but also a growing uh, red wave in rural areas. And uh, to a certain extent in Georgia, you also basically had the 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 red wall in rural Georgia. Uh, which uh, may be enough to counter the the blue wave from the urban areas and the suburban areas, and and that seems to be the story throughout the
1: country. Yeah, I think that's a really smart point to make, and one that's often overlooked, which is that you know when when you think of the progression of of how parties have approached assembling their coalitions uh, over the last decade or two. In my mind, the Obama campaign makes this big breakthrough when they assemble the so-called Obama coalition of uh, minorities and younger voters and and folks like that. And then what you do is you squeeze every last drop of water out of them. You max out. You don't worry about the other side. And they had great success with that. Um, And I think the Democratic Party pursued that to the extent it could. But then what we saw from the Trump campaign was that Well, if you excite the rural GOP base to the same extent that Obama excited the Democratic base, you can get similar results. And we saw that in states like Minnesota and in lots of other states. And I think you saw that to some degree in Florida, but you really saw it in Georgia, where Kemp's campaign, I think, was very clever and very savvy in the way they went about it. You know, I don't know if it was because they understood the power of Stacey Abrams uh, and what kind of coalition she could assemble or not, but Kemp was very smart in the way they worked uh, outside the metro areas. And, um, you know, just really rolled it up. I, I haven't seen uh, all the county numbers yet, but what I've seen a bunch of them in a lot of rural counties. Kemp actually ran ahead of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And their strategy to me appeared to be they went looking for voters, uh, a certain kind of low propensity conservative voter who uh, felt that who really responded to the message that Kemp was defending the president.
0: Yeah, and uh, I I think that uh, that was also true in places like Ohio and I think Wisconsin as well. Uh, We're also joined by Adam Rubinstein of the uh, Weekly Standard. Adam, I really wanted to talk to you today because you've been uh, writing about uh, Steve King, the... I wouldn't want to just say it. I mean, the, the, the worst congressman of Iowa, a guy who has flirted with white nationalists, and you, you are actually in Iowa. And sometime around, I'm looking at this uh, sometime around 3 or 4 o'clock, depending on which time zone you're looking at, Steve King gave you a shout-out. He actually linked to the story that you wrote. Your story had the headline, King of the Low Road, Iowa's Worst Congressman Ekes Out a Victory. Steve King retweeted your story, Adam. He saying, tweeted it out. Oh, we- he didn't even
2: retweet it. He <laughs> tweeted it out <at> himself. <laughs>
0: I know. The weekly No Standards has joined HuffPo at the bottom of a lying journalistic gutter. No question that now their purpose is to write willful lies to advance a leftist agenda. We threw this W.S. writer, you, out after he disqualified himself. So, so let me give a little background hey, congratulations here. Congratulations on the coveted non steed King endorsement.
2: <laughs> right, right, right. Or non-endorsement. I mean – Okay. I, I was following him around in, in rural Iowa. Uh, he had three campaign events on Monday. And he, his first campaign event on Monday in Hampton, Iowa, there was a small gathering. It'd be 15, 20 people. And he made a comment that was, that. when I tweeted it out, I didn't realize uh, the implications of what, what he had actually said, which is that he really hit the trifecta. I mean, it was both homophobic, racist, and misogynistic. He, he said that uh, maybe we'll have a 7-2 Supreme Court after the elections if uh, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan uh, elope together to Cuba. Um, so they that, didn't, was a,
0: that was a rare trifecta. Yes. Right.
2: They didn't like that I tweeted that. And then, uh, then at the second event, uh, he was talking about this pheasant soup that he makes after he goes uh, pheasant hunting each year. And the jalapeno peppers weren't spicy enough, so he'd have to go down to Mexico to get more dirt. And an audience member says, oh, it's already on its way. Uh, you know, a jab at the caravan, perhaps. Uh, it, it, it was clear uh, that the audience understood it to be a jab at, at immigrants or at Mexicans. And they, you know, went along with the jer- with, with the joke and, it turned into oh, and there's dirt coming in from the west coast, uh, and they didn't like that I wrote that earlier in, in the day, uh, that I called him out and I quoted him. I mean, if you read the piece, it's mostly context. Uh, it's it's you right. know whole audio transcription. Uh, it's not. Well, it's not what he says Steve, it is.
0: Steve Steve King is a target-rich environment. So what did you get thrown out of?
2: So uh, the election night watch party in uh, Sioux City, Iowa. Um, he, uh, he held this party. Uh, I will say uh, that he let in some media, uh, only television, and he let in some uh, radio. Uh, but he, he would not let in uh, Tom Cullen from the Storm Lake Times. He wouldn't let in people from the Huffington Post, and he wouldn't let me in. And, he's, and, he, and he said – his son, his campaign manager, his paid campaign manager, Jeff King, said to me, it's because of what you wrote today. I read well, at what least you wrote he's reading it, right? Yeah, well, At least his, sta- his statement about his statement about uh, my piece didn't uh, seem like he had actually read the piece because he said that uh, the media he was referring to the media dirt. But unless Steve King is the target of the Mexican media or the you know consistently out of California you know media organizations and you know he and he wasn't actually referring to. Mexicans or Mexican-Americans or immigrants coming from the South and moving into Iowa, which is a phenomenon because of uh, the labor force uh, needs in uh, certain mm-hmm. counties where Tyson and there are a lot of meatpacking organizations, uh, companies in, in rural Iowa. So, I mean, it's clear what he was talking about. Uh, and his son came up with uh, one of the silliest explanations. It actually Drove the. It made his case harder to make that he wasn't talking about. You know, Steve King's business is uh, dirt <laughs> mo- removal. I mean, he's, he, he, oh, yeah. he, he digs well, ditches. You know, this,
0: this is the thing about Steve King. He, you know, he he he's not subtle. I mean, the whole Faith Goldie thing. Um, also up on the Weekly Standard, we have a piece from Jonathan Last, who uh, you know talks about uh, the. The new Republican Party, one of my favorite lines is, if you want to understand the state of the Republican Party today, consider this. Steve King and Duncan Hunter will be congressmen next year. Mia Love and Pete Roskam won't. These twin events reflect Trump's understanding of what voters want. Um, and also, I mean, Dun- Duncan Hunter engaged in some of this uh, you know, bizarre fear mongering as uh, as 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 well. Well, let's talk about the other big story of the day, Charlie. Um, there's a report that the White House seems to be taken by surprise at the blowback against the appointment of um, uh, trump loyalist uh, Trump Trump loyalist, uh, Matt Whitaker as acting Attorney General. And the stories that keep coming out about this guy really do make you wonder whether they vetted him or, or maybe he got the job because of this. I'm looking at some of these headlines. Um, Matthew Whitaker believes Mueller investigation has gone on too long. This is August 2017. Also from August 2017, Matthew Whitaker disagrees with Rosenstein's decision to appoint a special counsel. Um Here's another one, Matthew Whitaker. The only difference between Watergate and this situation is actually in Watergate, there were crimes that occurred. And right now we have no evidence of any crime happening. And here's another one Matthew Whitaker calls Trump Tower meeting legal. So where is this going? Um, And, and I, I'm almost embarrassed to ask the question, you know, will there be any pushback from Republicans in the Senate, either either over how obviously unqualified this particularly this uh, this political hack happens to be for this position, or the fact that uh, he's been put into this position without any role for the u s. Senate. So what do you think, Charlie?
1: Well, I mean to to me, my first reaction was this is you know, this couldn't have been the idea that they were surprised it uh, mm-hmm. was kind of shocking to me because it struck me right away that this was an example of you know, not exactly a robust, vetting process when, you know, he had made so many public comments that were critical uh, of the special counsel appointment um, and, and just so many aspects uh, of the uh, Mueller probe. So I don't know how you could possibly be surprised by that. What I'm really interested in, in, in seeing and hearing is what the, the reaction is up on the Hill, uh, partly because I want to see what their first reaction to a flap like this is going to be after Tuesday and after Tuesday's results. And then I'm also going to be taking a look at, you know, who is taking a high profile role and who's not in in light of the 2020 Senate map, too, because I want to know what what, Mm -hmm, what is the mm -hmm. takeaway from uh, members of the Senate about Tuesday's results? And would they let something like this, which seems, you know, you you see lots of examples that it, 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 you know, that this maybe crosses a boundary that, uh, even for republicans that have been supportive of the president and so on an inc- on a on a moment in a controversy like this i want to see how the Hill responds? Is it going to be business as usual, as in the first two years of the Trump term, or has something changed as a result of Tuesday?
0: Yeah, somebody asked me this the other night, um, and I and I said, look, I, I'm I'm not naive about all of this, but it, but it is, of course, by this point, hard to imagine Republicans in the Senate pushing back too hard, especially because they feel emboldened, or at least you know have felt emboldened by what happened on Tuesday, even though those results may be may, may be changing. But you could certainly imagine a scenario uh, in which um, this becomes so toxic and he overreaches so significantly, shutting down a key aspect of the of the Mueller investigation, and that you do have, uh, some members of the Senate, and you could make a sort of a short list of, of that, uh, you know, Lamar Alexander, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, uh, Ben Sass. Uh, maybe Cory Gardner of Colorado, who is going to be up in 2020. And of course, incoming Mitt Romney saying, okay, you know, we, we do want to stand by the rule of law. But um, I think we've kind of seen this play over and over again. Let me throw out a, a thesis and, and both of you can push back on this. Um, and, and I understand that at first it sounds like it's it's an overstatement. Is it possible to argue that Matt Whitaker may actually be the worst appointment that Trump has made so far? And, and I say that knowing that there were some really bad ones. But the case for this would be the significance of the, the position, the attorney general of the United States in this particular moment versus his clear lack of fitness for the position and the questions about whether or not it is constitutional. So yes, there've been some really crappy appointments for, you know, white house positions. And of course we still have the general Flynn appointment, which is out there. So I understand the bar is pretty high, but this one has the feeling that this may be the worst personnel move so far of the Trump administration. Okay. Shoot me down.
1: I'm not sure that I can. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, but I mean, if, <laughs> excuse me. If if you're trying to find a, where this fits out, fits on the crappiness continuum. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. I, right. I feel like the way I, the factors I'm weighing is, you know, are there is there a uh, a line of tweets, uh, you know, that are racist in nature, nature or maybe suggests white nationalists uh, sympathizing things like that, which we've seen with with uh, a lot of other lower level officials. Uh, but I think I guess now that, you know, now that I think through your the, the premise here, I mean, when you think of the authority invested in him, the scope of the job, uh, you know, it could it ranks pretty high up there. The only mitigating factor might be that it's uh, acting. Yeah, but that, that in, in a lot of ways that makes it worse, I
0: think, because it is that that whole really I mean, we, we look when you have George Conway writing in The New York Times, you know, Kellyanne Conway's. But, you know, I mean, I'm mean, i sorry, Kellyanne Conway's husband, uh, the, the most fascinating marriage in American politics. I mean, this makes the Mary Madeline James Carville marriage seem really benign. Really, doesn't it? Uh, when he's writing in The New York Times that this is a completely this is an unconstitutional appointment. We have Neil Kadia, who's the former solicitor general, referring to him as the fake attorney general. I mean, wow, you have this on so many different levels. But I guess the real the other question is whether any anything will happen. Um, th- th- you know, let's say that the ethics attorneys of the justice department go to him and say, you know what, um, you need to recuse yourself from the Russia investigation because of your, your, your past comments. There's nothing that, uh, that binds him to do that. And this is a reminder. Once again, that a lot of things that we thought were established, uh, norms that we thought were, uh, were, were fixed and firm, in fact, turn out to be, um, rather thin and fragile. And that a lot of this is really an honor system. That our system of government um, – we talk about checks and balances, but that's kind of a metaphor. And the honor system assumes that people will behave in an ethical and honorable manner. And we may be about to find out what happens if that whole system breaks down. So I didn't give you a chance, Adam, to push back on, yeah, on my mean, I, this being the worst appointment yet.
2: Yeah, I mean you have – you certainly have uh, plenty to choose from. But I would also think who – would, who would we expect him not necessarily who we would want, but who, who could who could he appoint? Justice Janine Piro. I mean, could Judge Janine. Right. I, I remember people were joking that she would be a Supreme Court appointment uh, if Kavanaugh went down. Maybe he'll just you know go all in and uh, and, and support her. I, I mean I, I could see some somebody way uh, way worse. I mean I don't think we've yet hit the bottom uh we, that we we've scraped the bottom of the barrel yet
0: no no. Um, i mean it could be worse there could be other things that are worse but but this this is at the moment the worst it, i think somebody tweeted out this morning sort of um, imagine richard nixon replacing john mitchell with g gordon liddy but i mean this you know the, the the question of why would the white house be surprised by the pushback th- that's an easy question that's almost unfair um, it's because they they live in this Fox News bubble. They they get their worldview from Sean Hannity. Um, but they really almost literally have gotten somebody um, out of that world to put in this position when you see his comments and what he has done in the past. And but uh, the danger is that the power of the attorney general is really sweeping. I mean, it is, uh, it is, it is really quite extraordinary.
2: Yeah, I mean, just, I was just in Iowa. There, there's an interesting Iowa connection. And Whitaker is from Iowa, and he's uh, a close friend of Steve King's. And Steve King uh, says that he uh, recommended him uh, to the president in an Oval Office meeting earlier in, earlier in, in October uh, for uh, special attention for a position so you know they the the idea mm-hmm. that these people are are just on the on the fringe in uh, the current White House uh, I don't think uh, we should give much uh, weight to I think that they're actually uh, maybe running it
0: yeah let's go back to uh, the the election I we think we were talking about this before we went on the air um, and Charlie the uh, the the way the the results are playing out today Friday compared to election night. On on Friday, um, by eight o'clock um, Central Time, people were were declaring, "Well, it's not a blue wave; it's a, it's a blue trickle." Um, Republicans have, you know, greatly uh, overperformed, and of course, the president comes out and you know spikes the football, including gloating about uh, you know conservative Republicans who had not embraced him going down to defeat, and yet now on Friday you look back with all the votes being counted, and if, in fact, uh, the Democrats pick up 40 seats, I mean, that is definite wave territory. There's no question about it. That is the biggest Democratic pickup since Watergate. If, in fact, uh, uh, Kirsten Sinema pulls it out in Arizona, um, that certainly mitigates the Republican gains in the U.S. Senate. So really, this is one of those moments where the way we experienced it in real time might have distorted the actual impact of this election.
1: I think there's a lot of truth uh, to that interpretation. Uh, but having said that, I'm a little bit of a contrarian on, on this still. I'm, I, I still don't, it doesn't feel to me like a blue wave. and And that's not to diminish what Democrats accomplished on election night. I mean, clearly they won the House. But when you give the, give the, the, the trauma that's been done to the, the you know the, the the civic body the the energy on the left at the grassroots level the fundraising at the grassroots level um, the departure from norms and the the, the blatant uh, dismissal of, of norms and, and and traditions that has so enraged the left and all they got was the house I mean it just see and it wasn't even a blowout it wasn't a 2010 style blowout it wasn't a 1994 style. Blowout. I guess I just expected more. We didn't see massive gains at the state legislative level. We didn't see massive gains uh, at the gubernatorial level. I mean, which is again, I don't mean to diminish uh, picking up seven gubernatorial seats, but to me, it's more like a standard election year uh, in, in in that respect. So. I guess I'm still I think it was a good year for for Democrats. a very good election, but not a great election
0: okay. well, this this is one of those those years where you can pick your narrative. Let me give you the, the, the counter on that um and uh, I, I don't I don't really totally disagree with that. But when you look at the structural advantages that Republicans had in the House of Representatives, um, I think it does become somewhat more impressive, and I think Nate Cohen made this point: uh, if you factor in the gerrymandering, the redistricting, um, the uh, you know and the the strength of the economy, all of those things, uh, all of those fundamentals, it really did you know make it more difficult for Republicans to pick up um, the on the United States Senate. I think perhaps we're all. The, I think the Democrats are the victims of. Uh, of uh, excessive expectations because this was fought in Trump land. This was this, the, the map, the Senate map was overwhelmingly red. And I think also, so the, that was tremendously uphill, but there are some other things that we talked about a little bit earlier, which is the, uh, the, the growing red wall in rural Wisconsin, I mean, rural Wisconsin. Well, I'm going to get to Wisconsin in a moment because I always do, Um uh, you know, rural America. Um, but, uh, but it was a very strong night um, for 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 Democrats. I I see what you're saying, um, but I I don't know that uh, that I I don't know that Republicans should take a lot of uh, of, uh, of 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 solace from some of the things they won. I think that. You know, in in retrospect, the whole you know, mania type thing, and I use that as sort of a stand-in for some of these superstar candidates who ended up sort of belly flopping. Um, did you really think that you were going to get a progressive Democrat, you know, winning in Texas? Really, uh, would you really think that you were going to get a very progressive uh, African American governor in a state like Florida, which has no income tax? But it is interesting, you know, and and and, 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 and people who listen to this podcast and I always get back to Wisconsin you know, Scott Walker goes down in a pretty stunning defeat. Democrats win the Senate seat overwhelmingly. And yet the Democrats did not pick up a single seat in the state assembly. They lost a seat in the state Senate. And the really what that reflects, leaving aside the redistricting, what it reflects is how concentrated the Democratic vote is. So you have this massive vote you know, out of Madison, Wisconsin, a massive vote out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is enough to elect a Democrat governor of the state, but it doesn't affect any of the legislative seats out state. And I think that that's a story that you've been seeing around the country as well. And that's part of this mixed verdict.
1: Right. And and I don't mean to. Um insinuate in any way that this was a good night for Republicans. I don't think it was. Um, I think uh, I think it was ludicrous for the president to get out there and sort of embrace the results and, and use it as some sort of validation for uh, his, his governance over the last two years. In fact, I think he did a tremendous disservice by not using the kind of language that uh, George – uh, uh, w. Bush and Barack Obama used in describing the results. Remember, it was in 2006. Bush called it a thumping, or was he the shellacking one? I think he, he said I took a shellacking, mm-hmm. and no, he was the thumping. I'm sorry. So Bush gets out there next day and says I take took a thumping. Obama gets out there after 2010 and admits to uh, a shellacking that his party. Took, and in both cases, they were serving very important roles. I think in that they were placating voters by by acknowledging. I hear, I heard your anger. I know you mm-hmm. are really pissed off, and we we will try to be responsive to the degree that we can. We got none of that out of the White House. We got a hey, we just went out there and kicked some butt. We held the Senate. Everything's great. The people who lost in my party—they were losers and malcontents. You know, we're, we'll be stronger without them. And so, to me, one of the reasons I also thought that the the gains were, you know, limited to a certain degree was because they were uh, they were predictable. They were when you look at who lost. Take a look at a state like Illinois, which I thought was really right uh, revealing. So, who who did uh, Republicans? They lost Roskam and. Uh, Holtgren in Chicagoland. So an exurban seat and a suburban seat. But, you know, who survived uh, were the downstaters, you know, because that Trump went to see. So to me, the gains were mostly limited to suburban America. They picked off uh, Democrats picked off all the suburbanites and all the districts in Twin Cities and you know Atlanta and all the Dallas, Houston, all these places. But all of those seats were inevitably going to leave the party anyway. You could see this erosion happening started in the 90s in the Northeast and the Midwest. And then, you know, in the last decade, we've seen that erosion uh, go through the South and the Sunbelt. And finally, uh, you know, it hit hard this year. And so to me, if it was more broad based I think uh, the, the Democrats would yeah. have more to crow about. And then one last point that I would just make on the gerrymandering. You know, people talk about, well, there's, you know, they were up against these structural barriers. Well, Republicans in 1994, when they won that massive revolutionary class, they were up against uh, structural barriers. Like all of those maps in the 90s, they were all engineered – not all, but many of them were engineered yeah. by – Democratic controlled legislatures. And and remember, even California, that was where the before before Democrats noticed gerrymandering, the speaker of the House in California joked about how bad that gerrymander was. And he called it my contribution to modern art because it was so uh, ridiculously drawn. And he was proud of it at the time. And Republicans beat through that to make massive gains in 94.
0: Charlie, um, any any particular races that were really surprising or striking to you?
1: without question, Joe Manchin in West Mm -hmm. Virginia. Uh, That to me was just a feat, uh, a legendary feat that people will be talking about for years. I mean, here, Manchin was going up against hurricane uh, force winds in the most pro-Trump state in the country and still managed to pull it off despite a concerted effort by the White House. And I think it's really a testament to sort of, uh, old-fashioned retail politicking uh, to the commitment he's had. Think of how that state has, how quickly that state has whiplashed from being solidly blue to being solidly red. There is so much economic dislocation there, and and hurt, and anger, and probably worse fury. You know, the state, large portions of the state, believe that the federal government is literally waging war on them. Mm-hmm. So to run as a Democrat in that kind of environment is almost as uh, you know political it, it's suicide it, it is Manchin it, was re- lucky yeah. no, oh, I'm it, sorry it, it, it's remarkable yeah and Manchin was lucky that he got a subpar uh, opponent I think he really dodged a bullet there but still what he was able to accomplish and what it reveals about his connection to West Virginia is to me remarkable
0: Yeah, I thought that in the John Tester race, uh, really, when you think about, you know, running uphill in all of those elections, because if either one of them or both of them had gone down, we would be saying, well, that was inevitable. There was no question. I mean, this is a this is a sign of the times. Uh, The other race that uh, I found fascinating and uh, uh, you have to give a shout out to, uh, you know, the folks at The Daily Podcast, uh, you know, The New York Times, uh, they really focused on uh, the defeat of uh, Dave Brat by Abigail Spanberger, which is really extraordinary. When you see, you know, the guy um, knocks off the sitting majority leader um, because he was not sufficiently anti-Obamacare. And in 2018, he is defeated because of his opposition to Obamacare. I mean, that's really one of those whiplash uh, elections, but also uh, an indication of, of, of how, you know, candidate quality matters. And the Democrats did a good job recruiting some quality candidates in these races.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, candidate quality played a huge role, and I, I think um, in in that, to me, that race was also a, a sign of the suburban erosion that I was talking about before. Uh, that that Republicans are suffering from there It was the Richmond area, like Chesterfield counties, places like that. But also, in some ways, to me, Brat was. Like the oldest kind of Washington story in that you know, Icarus flies a little too close to the sun, believes the press clippings a little too much, and within a couple terms totally sort of loses their moorings and and believes all the press clippings and then ultimately gets taken down.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Charlie uh, Metesian. did I get it right that time? Yeah. Uh, From Politico. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much in a very, very fluid – wow, I'm – you know – We should be over, by the way, saying, you know, boy, this was a uh, an extraordinarily um, newsworthy week because, I mean, when has it not been? And we knew this one was going to be. Uh, Thank you for listening to The Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we will do this all over again.